All right, friends, we are going to make our way through this count the cost passage that we started last week. It says, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, and I always like to point out the difference between how Jesus would handle great crowds and how many in uh, the 2000s would handle great crowds. And um, let me share a story. Some of you have heard it before, but um, I my first pastor job was up in Clintonville, Wisconsin, and uh, it was a small town. There was uh, another church in town where the pastor said, hey, I'm going to bring in um, this family that does revivals. Would you like to join uh, with our church? And I said, sure. And he said, well, why don't you bring a bunch of people and we can train them to be counselors at the revival? So I got a bunch of people. We went to this training and um, there was a, a young man. He had a suit on, very nice tie. And he said, well, here's how it's going to work. Uh, we're going to have music and we're going to have a sermon and then we're going to have an altar call. And when the altar call is given, we want you people who are the counselors to be the first to stand up and come forward. And then hopefully that will help uh, other people in the crowd uh, follow you and uh, give their life to Jesus. And I think he could tell I was a little uh, skeptical and he said, now, you know, just think of it as literally leading people to Jesus. And here was my concern with that. Um, you don't get people to follow Jesus by emotionally stirring them up and creating the illusion that other people are coming to Christ. That's what that's what they wanted to do. And then he finally said, you know, if you feel uncomfortable with that, you can just sit there and wait for everybody to come forward. Then you can come down. So it's the night of the revival, auditorium full of people. Uh, they give the, the altar call. All the counselors stand up. They go forward. Other people follow. Then I, I walk down the aisle. I get paired up with uh, a couple, and um, we end up going into a room. And I, I just thought I'd ask him, what what made you come forward? And he kind of had tears in his eyes, and he said, you know, during the, the, the program, they honored the veterans, and they had everybody who was a veteran stand up, and everybody clapped for us, and then they sang, proud to be an American. He said, I'd never been honored like that, and uh, that's why I came forward. Now, that's great. I think we should honor our, our veterans. I love the song, uh, but it has nothing to do with salvation. And... What, what what it did was it created emotion. It looked like multitudes of people came to Christ. But rather than stopping and asking these people, really count the cost, it just created emotional followers, right? So um, let's contrast how Jesus handles the crowds to that one example. So uh, last week we looked at this verse. Jesus turns to the crowds and he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And yes, we pointed out that word hate is to get our attention. Um, it is a, a, a kind of a punch in the stomach word, uh, hyperbole, but it gets us to realize that this guy Jesus 
is no ordinary preacher. In fact, he's claiming to be God because only God deserves this kind of allegiance. And he, yes, he is saying, um, if you want to follow me, your love for me has to be greater than your own family. Now, there's a lot of things we could talk about, but last week I talked about the fact that this is a very loving thing for him to say because um, you in loving your own family, need to have a stronger love for the Lord because your love for the Lord needs to be an example to them. And the example I gave was if you're sitting in an airplane and the flight attendant says, if we lose altitude, a mask will drop in front of you. Um, Put your mask on first before helping your small children. And uh, I pointed out that, yes, that is a loving thing to do. Take care of yourself first, and then you can help others. If in a a moment of bravado you say, no, 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 I will help everybody else on the plane, and you die, how is that helpful? So if you missed that, take a look at that. That was last week's sermon. But Jesus goes on, and he talks about taking up our cross. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, um, the listeners would have thought of one thing. They had seen the Roman roads lined with 2,000 Jews crucified on crosses. Many Jews had been crucified by the Roman government. So they would have thought, this guy's actually saying, we need to be willing to go through that to follow him? Now, um... On the one hand, I think some people would say, I'm out. I think on the other hand, some people are going to say, yep, count me in. I'd be willing to die for you. And I just want to caution us about bravado here. Uh, If you remember, Peter had a lot of bravado. Uh, At the Last Supper, Jesus says, you know, one of you is going to betray me. And and, and Peter says, I would never betray you. And Jesus says to him, Truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you, Peter, will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Well, Jesus knew better. And part of the problem here is the apostles are all caught up in emotion. They think that this is still going to be a political or military takeover of the Roman government. And yes, let's go down in the flames. We'll, even if you die, we'll die with you. And what happens? Jesus gets arrested, which sends them into a tizzy. And then Peter actually gets scared and he denies that he even knows Jesus. So I, I think what what this is calling for us to do is to say, would I be willing to die for Jesus? Not in a moment of bravado, not in a moment of emotional fervor, but but in a cool, calm way, am I committed to Jesus, even if it costs me my life? Now, let me let me remind us that there is a figurative um, 
carrying of our cross. In fact, earlier in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Well, um, I, I think sometimes we can go, oh yes, I would die for Jesus, but would you live for him in a way that dies for uh, for him and for others every day? And for some people, that's family division. To follow Christ is going to wreak havoc in your family. And following Jesus is taking up your cross every day. For some of you, you're in a work or environment, a work or, fi- or school environment that um, you get mocked and your cross is going to work or school every day. For some, your cross is just enduring under uh, a physical disability, um, sickness, uh, just difficulty where you say, I will follow you, Jesus, even if I have to die daily. Let me move on and look at the actual words where he talks about the cost of following him. He says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In other words, Jesus is, is saying, stop. I want you to, to think through, are you willing to, to pay the price involved in following me? Now, last week we raised this question, how does a passage like this, saying that it may cost you your life and your, your all, how does that fit with salvation by faith alone? And we made the important distinction between the cost of purchasing salvation, which is something you cannot do. Jesus, that's why Jesus went to his cross. Well, there's a distinction between the, the cost of purchasing salvation and the cost of love. Following Christ will cost you everything out of love, not out of purchasing salvation. We talked about marriage. Um, marriage I, I didn't cost me a cent to marry Elizabeth. In another sense, it's cost me everything, and I'm very happy uh, about that cost. Right? Yeah, even think of of our kids involved in school. Um, you know, back in my day, we didn't have any extra fees if we wanted to play uh, basketball or or football. It didn't cost anything. In another sense. It cost everything. Your whole life revolved around daily practice, two-a-days in the summer, you know, broken fingers. Um, it cost nothing to, uh, to play the game. It cost everything to love the game. Now, I just want to remind us, especially in America, it's difficult to count the cost of 
following Jesus when the gospel is sold as pray this prayer, you get to go to heaven, and here's a book he's given us to give us a better life. I don't know that that fairly represents what he is asking of us. Have you ever heard of Sir John Franklin? He was a British naval captain who tried to uh, find the Northwest Passage, which would be a waterway that would go north of Canada from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. Um, so, so back in 1845, he led an expedition with two ships to find the Northwest Passage. And um, I don't think they really counted the cost. When you look at the cargo that was on these two ships, there were 2,400 books in the libraries. Uh, they brought along a hand organ. Um, the meals for the officers involved um, a full table setting of fine china. The silverware had their initials and their family crests engraved on the silver. There was 9,000 pounds of chocolate, 2,000 pounds of tea, 7,000 pounds of tobacco, and no special winterware, just their uniforms. All 138 sailors died and their frozen bodies uh, were discovered all over uh, the frozen sea. They didn't count the real cost of the mission. In fact, their commitment to their luxurious lifestyle blinded them to counting the cost and preparing for the mission. Right? So, um, have we counted the true cost of following Jesus? And one way to just do a quick check, um, and I've, I've heard this, this many times, one way to determine where our heart really is, is to look at our schedules and our checkbook. Because our time and our money flows to where our true commitment is. Does your schedule, does your checkbook flow toward your commitment to Christ as primary? Or does that all flow toward other luxurious things? All right. So let's move on and talk about the call to give all. Jesus says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Can you honestly say that this verse describes your love for Christ and your commitment to his mission? Let me, let me go back to the marriage analogy. And um, as you know, I, uh, I love 70s uh, music. And true confession, while uh, sometimes I give across the image that I'm a rock and roller and, uh, you know, into ACDC and uh, that whole realm, my real love is 70s mellow music. And um, maybe Greg's the only one out there who remembers 
bread. Maybe Kevin remembers this, but uh, one of Bread's favorite uh, remembered songs is It Don't Matter to Me. Okay, please do not take my voice and create a 70s uh, memory album. I mean, I know it's a great voice, but uh, Bread sings It Don't Matter to Me. If you take up with someone who's better than me, because your happiness is all I want. Now, oh, that sounds so romantic that um, even if I don't end up with you, my, your happiness is all I want. And if you take up with someone else, I will be so happy for you. Uh, there's another song, Todd Rundgren, called Hello, It's Me. And um, kind of the crescendo of the song is, it's important to me that you know you are free because I never want to make you change for me. Some of you are, are singing that, all right? Now, um, while this seems like super romantic, uh, hey, young ladies out there, do not marry a guy like this. Someone who says, it don't matter to me if you take up with someone else. Um, now, I, I don't think you should should find a stalker, okay? Um, but somebody who's a little more devoted to you would be good, all right? And then the, I, I never want to make you change for me. You know what Jesus is doing in this passage? He's saying, I want, I, I am so committed to you that I will change for you. I will leave the glory of heaven and become a poor itinerant preacher. And I will be crucified for you. And I am so in love with you. I will do that. And I want you to be radically in love with me. Everything should be altered, your schedule, your money, your priorities, your heart, your decisions, your eternity, everything, right? And just as when you get married, it changes everything. When you become a follower of Jesus, you say voluntarily, willingly, um, yes, I give up everything for you. And by give up, I don't mean that in a cultic way where the cult takes all your money. It means you say, this is all yours now, Lord. Uh, my, my car, my home, my money, my children, my personality, everything is now yours. And you know what he says in most cases? Now you are the steward to use all of that to advance the kingdom. And I won't re-preach the whole uh, the parable of the talents. Um, but are you willing to say, yes, Lord, you've given me life and breath and salvation, and now I will use everything for you, All right? One last thing. He ends with this talk about salt. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? So we're salt and light, and as I've studied the metaphor of salt, I believe the primary uh, reference is to how salt brings flavor. Just light, light brings vision in a dark world. We are the light of the world. We show them how to live. And salt brings flavor. 
By living for Christ, we're actually showing the rest of the world what true life is all about. But he says if if we lose our taste, our savor, our flavor, it, salt, you know, you, you know, bland salt, is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Right? So this is a call to say, um, yes, as I give everything to Jesus, I am also committing to be the light of the world, the salt of the world, showing people what true life really is. And and how do how do we do that? Well, let me quote, and we've we've done a whole sermon without a reference to Piper, um, in uh, his book "Don't Waste Your Life." Here's what a salty life looks like. So, if you ask me tonight, all right, tell us then, what is the unwasted life? What does it look like? What is the essence of the unwasted life? A life that puts the infinite value of Christ on display for the world to see. Do you get that? The passion of the unwasted life is to joyfully display the supreme excellence of Christ by the way we live. Life is given to us so that we can use it to make much of Christ. Possessions are given to us so that by the way we use them, we can show that they are not our treasure. But Christ is our treasure. Money is given to us so that we will use it in a way that shows money is not our treasure, but Christ is our treasure. And I believe I added this, um, you know, fill in the blank. Success is given to us. Money is given to us. Entertainment is given to us. Relationships are given. You name it. Everything we have is given to us so we can show that those things are not our ultimate fulfillment but Christ is our ultimate fulfillment. Now, I'm not calling for asceticism here where we deny any pleasure. No, I'm saying live your life in such a way that these things are not seen as our idols, that Christ is our ultimate. Now, um, I find it interesting that in um, a short span in Scripture, Jesus uses the word manure Twice. Remember before he gave the parable where um, the the vineyard owner says, this fig tree is is not producing any fruit. Cut it down. And the farmer says, whoa, 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 whoa. Before you cut it down, let me put manure around it. And manure's good. We're, and and we, uh, we need to put uh, nourishing manure. Uh, there, in, and I use that to talk about um, putting the spiritual disciplines in our life so we produce fruit. Here, he says, um, we can be such bland salt that it's no use for the soil. It's going to ruin the soil or even the manure pile. And here he's saying um, that bland salt is, is even worth less than the manure pile. And that makes me want to say, I don't want, I do not want my life to be wasted. I don't want uh, to be told you you were so tasteless, and and you lived in such a way that you were no different than the rest of the world. That that you were worse than the manure pile. Um, I want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. 
So let me pray, Lord, as we uh, contemplate your words here. They really are, in a sense, terrifying words. In an, another sense, challenging words, especially in times like this. So, Lord, as we desire to be salt and light, may we recommit to give everything to you. May we count the cost and be willing to even die for you, to die daily. And may you be glorified in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.